Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Why don't you bring in our esteemed guests? Her children are still out there. They couldn't get home from school yesterday. Dana, it's great to have you with us. Dana Ramoa, JP Morgan Asset Management Senior Portfolio Manager. I won't start with the politics. I want to focus with the markets. This morning, we had a really ugly German business confidence read. Not on current, the current situation, but on expectations of what was about to come. The data really isn't stabilizing in Europe, Diana. What's your read on things at the moment? I think we're almost at the point where we're moving on to the second act of this weakness in Europe, where the first, first bit of weakness we saw last year was being blamed on all sorts of supply-side constraints, on trade wars, on what's happening in the auto sector. Now we're starting to see that spillover into the consumer side and into the demand side. So weak demand is coming through on a lot of the surveys. Um, additionally, we're starting to see companies saying some of the constraints that had been there on the supply side are actually fa- are fading because they just they don't see the demand to match it. So much more concerning, I'd say, for the outlook for the German economy. What's the circuit breaker for this weakness? Because quite clearly, many people come on this program and don't think it's the ECB. So where does the circuit breaker come from? The circuit breaker comes from the politicians. We need to see fiscal stimulus come in. Um, that's ultimately what's going to shift the trajectory for growth. The longer this continues, the more it will start to impact potential growth. Um, now, they've been hesitant to act because they don't see the weakness in the labor market. But the minute you get an indication that the labor market is starting to slow down and we are seeing the momentum on job growth fading, mm-hmm. then the policymakers will be forced to act. I, I mean, we asked Bill Dudley this question yesterday about $1 trillion U.S. deficit and what do you do with fiscal expansion in the United States if you need it? What's the ability to have fiscal expansion in Europe? I haven't seen a good article yet actually laying out what the catalyst will be for individual governments to do what Madame Lagarde or Brussels wants to do. I see no evidence of it. Yeah, I think it's on a case-by-case basis. Um, Unfortunately, I think the big conundrum is that countries that have some flexibility on fiscal are the ones that need it least. Germany, however, now is becoming more of an issue. They certainly have the space, Um, not necessarily the willingness to act decisively, but they do have space to do some significant fiscal spend. But that's just one part of Europe. What is it, Jen? 27 nations? It's a big part Well, 27 excluding the UK. Okay, which we often do now. We do, do we? Yeah, we do do that now. We say twenty-seven plus. We say twenty-seven plus one. I mean, I mean, the basic theme here for our listeners, and this includes those coast to coast on Bloomberg Radio, is when does this low interest rate environment end? I mean, I talked to your John Norman or, or or others at J.P. Morgan, and and there's just like a desire to get back to normalization. What's the glide path to get back to normal? Yeah, so it depends on what normal is. I would argue this is the new normal. This Um, is the new normal. So you're managing a fixed income portfolio, assuming this is stasis. This is the new normal where the lower bound on monetary policy has decisively shifted. um, And we we see investors starting to acknowledge that. Hence, the yield grab that we've been seeing, people are actually thinking, if this environment is here for the the medium term, and inflation expectations aren't Mm. rising, why should we not look to lock in yields where we can find them right now? A conversation that came up again and again and again in the last couple of days with Tom and I on this program and elsewhere 
was the policy response from China that we've seen so far. The central bank, the governor speaking again in the last 24 hours, reluctant to aggressively ease. The finance minister speaking, I believe, overnight, saying that the tax cuts will be bigger than expected. The nature of the stimulus in China has changed. Has the character of the spillover changed as well? Because we've been looking at China trying to stabilise the situation for a long time, and I haven't seen any positive fallout from that effort. No, completely agree. I think China's response has changed. They've accepted a lower growth environment. We saw those statements last week saying getting growth back about six six 6% is going to be challenging for China. So there's an acceptance to accept, uh, there's a willingness to accept lower growth at the at the at the because for them the big issue is keeping debt levels stable so they don't want to increase net leverage in the system so those two things act in different ways they are focused more on um stimulating consumption domestically rather than historical infrastructure spends which have boosted the external growth and i think for now it's drips and drabs for china we're not going to get the big bazooka that we had in 2015 or 2008 from china unless things really really become dire from here Diana, always love catching up with you. Diana Ramoa, JP Morgan Asset Management, Senior Portfolio Manager, joining us here in New York. I can tell you that talks about talks are leading to more talks. The Treasury Secretary later confirming with Fox Sounds News. Like later, later confirming with Fox News that those talks uh, would commence <clears throat> on the week October 7th in Washington with the Chinese Vice Premier. Marilyn Watson of BlackRock, please weigh in on this craziness. Where are we in all of this? Yeah, I mean, there's a huge amount going on, obviously. Uh, I think the markets are really focusing still on the trade tensions and the talks that are going to be coming up in October. We have seen um, some concessions already from the Chinese uh, in terms of I say, buying more agriculture, in terms of pork, in terms of um, you know soybean, etc. Um, and I think, to your point, it's really interesting now, especially as we have the UN Council, to see all these side talks. So it's not only the trade tensions, but also any discussions around uh, the tensions around Iran, Saudi Arabia, Brexit, you name it. I think it's all going on. And I think that's why we're seeing a bit more volatility that we are in the market. Obviously, we had the announcement in the UK this morning. We saw the spike in sterling. Um, but I think really there are a whole range of different issues that are very politically driven that are really sort of um, focusing the market on them at the moment. A whole range of issues that could be addressed at the UN later today. Just as far as the trade story is concerned, we've had a series of growth scares through this cycle. We mentioned them many times, 2011, 2012, 15, 16, and now 18 coming into 2019. Do the trade talks hold the keys to how long we will be going through this growth scare? Or can we come out of it because of something else somewhere else? some kind of policy initiative that brings us out of this finally. How does this play out in your mind? What's your base case, Marilyn? So I think that the trade tensions are really a core component of the global growth trajectory going Mm -hmm. forward. We've seen that in the export data coming out of Japan, out of Korea, uh, in Europe. Um, we're We're seeing the impact that it's having on the PMIs in the Eurozone and elsewhere. And I think it really is starting to play a key role in global growth. Then at BlackRock... In fixed income, which spread narrows most advantageously for our listeners? If there's a permanence to this regime, as James Bullard would call it, where's the spread narrowing opportunity? 
So um, at the moment in the US, uh, we do like investment grade credit. We think in this environment where the Fed is gradually reducing rates, where it continues to support the growth of the economy, <clears throat> then we do continue to like spread product. We also like agency MBS, etc. I think in the Eurozone, we do see spreads tightening further in the long end of the curve um, in Italy and France. We think we can see further compression there. But I think also, so trade isn't the only thing. And we are seeing um, a ratcheting up of, I guess, a focus on whether we could see more fiscal stimulus in Europe, whether we can see more fiscal stimulus around the world, as well as you know a range of loosening from central banks around the world as well. So we could potentially see more in Japan. We're seeing uh, more in uh, China, for example, in the Eurozone. So it's not just trade, but that is one of the key components that is having an impact on global growth. I was just quickly taking a look at one of your trades and looking for that compression, that spread compression compression in, in Europe. In Italy right now, the spread over Germany on a 10-year maturity is 141, call it 142 basis points. The tights of the QE era are 88 basis points. And I just wonder, can we retest the tights of the QE era, the kind of levels we had back in early 2015? Is that what you're looking for, Marilyn? Well, so we've already seen a huge compression between Italy and Germany. We've really seen that come down quite considerably. It's hard to see in the near term them getting back to the tights that you, that you mentioned with, between Italy and Germany, because we do still see um, a lot of um, political risk in Italy still. <clears throat> They've moderated, but they haven't gone away. Um, the Eurozone as a whole um, is still uh, you know, struggling, and we've seen the very, I say, the very weak data coming out of Germany and elsewhere as well. So I think the ECB is doing everything it can. They've made it very clear that we need to see more fiscal stimulus. I think really to get back to the tights in between Italy and Germany, you need to see a lot more in terms of um, yeah. structural reform in Italy, politi- politics, etc. Marilyn Watson, Marilyn, thank, thank you. So you. It's right, good to right. see you. Thank you. We come to you this morning from the Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios in New York. We thank Interactive Brokers for their real commitment to our conversation on economics, finance, investment, and Brexit. And Brexit. It just keeps going. Are you, are you, sure, are you, are you sure that's what you want to focus on? Uh, that's what we're going to focus we're on right crazy now. Town. We can do that with a gentleman who's really quite informed. He's with Chatham House, which is one of the great think tanks of London. I've walked by there. Uh, they're awesome. they're fancy offices. They're very British and all that. Thomas Raines is in there having tea uh, at the appropriate hour, and he joins us right now. Thomas Raines, good morning. Um, I, I see just one headline coming out. I'm not quite sure how current it is that Jeremy Corbyn at the Labor Conference will move up his speech one day. There's an immediacy of the next 24 hours. Do you have a hint or a guesstimate of what the prime minister will do, worried about whether the Mets will make it in Manhattan? That's a great question. Uh, thanks for having me on. I, I think it's at this point, probably uh, Boris Johnson will just uh, hold fire. What we know will happen as a result of the court judgment is that Parliament will return to sitting very shortly. So uh, the order of prorogation to suspend Parliament was unlawful. Uh, so MPs will yeah. go back to business in the Commons. But we don't actually know what they're going to do with this extra time uh, that they have. There are lots of calls for Boris Johnson to resign. I suspect 
he will resist those calls for now. But in a way, what he would like and what uh, all of the parties have said they yeah. want is a general election. And the question is really about how yeah. that comes about. I mean, maybe, Jen, they'll figure out what to do with the tots. That seems to be a London you, issue You right really now. want to make this about sport, don't you? <clears throat> no, well, it is a sport. You're bringing, I mean, the, Mets. You're bringing a... the Mets for Thomas Reigns. Yeah, it's okay. I mean, Brexit <clears throat> is a sport. It goes on and on and on. A sport that not many people like watching at the moment. Look, Thomas, here's a question for you. The Prime Minister is quite clearly lost in Parliament. He's lost in court. Does that necessarily mean he loses in the court of public opinion? I think that's much less clear. So in some ways, and there is a theory that uh, this court judgment isn't as bad politically for Boris Johnson as it is uh, legally. Um, He has tried to present the narrative that he is the one sort of true believer in Brexit who is committed to making it happen. And against him, you have the Labour Party, you have a Remain Parliament, and now you have judges. So in some ways, it might add to the narrative that he has to say, look, I'm the only one who can do to deliver this. It's the establishment against me trying to block Brexit. Having said that, this is such a clear and damning verdict. It wasn't a judgment about Brexit as much as he will be trying to frame it. It was a judgment about the power of the executive branch to suspend Parliament. And this was a powerful assertion of the rule of law and of parliamentary sovereignty. I think it's quite difficult to spin that, but he will certainly try. He wants to try and bring back as many of those Brexit party voters, so people who've gone towards Nigel Farage's Brexit party in the European elections who've, had, who've sort of yeah. risen out of nowhere in the last few months, uh, and he'll try as oh. much as possible to win them back. Tom Range, your claim is the tribes. You talk about the European tribes. Define the Farage tribe of England and how they, re- and I mean England, and how they respond to this historic moment for the nation. Uh, well, what's, what's interesting about this is a sort of subtext to it, which is that the, uh, the chief sort of political advisor to Boris Johnson is Dominic Cummings. Now, he yeah. ran the main uh, Leave campaign, but he used to have uh, terrible fights during the referendum campaign with Nigel Farage and his colleagues who ran a slightly different campaign, um, which was much more focused on, on immigration and other issues. And there's a real political split there, and they are coming out with the knives for Dominic Cummings now. There are calls on Twitter from actually all across both the Brexit Party and the Conservative Party for Cummings to resign. They hold him uh, responsible for this prorogation strategy. So there is a sort of political split behind the scenes between those two. I think Brexit Party voters, many of whom will probably uh, not be put off by uh, by uh, Johnson's condemnation by the court. Um, you know, there is a hardcore of British uh, public opinion, which is disproportionately English, as you mentioned. It tends to be older voters. It tends to be people outside of the big cities who are who feel that Brexit is the most important political issue that they face. They believe yeah. that Parliament and others are trying to block it, and I doubt that they will uh, be too concerned uh, in terms of their support for Brexit because of the judgment of the court. Thomas, this is embarrassing for the Prime Minister. I imagine the front pages won't be favourable to the Prime Minister tomorrow, but I wonder if the Prime Minister ultimately ends up with what he wants. Jeremy Corbyn will address his party and the membership as soon as today. When he does that, Thomas, doesn't it make it harder for him to avoid the calls for a general election now? Parliament will come back tomorrow, and I have no doubt the Prime Minister will present them with the same question. If you want me out, if you think I should resign, let's have an election. How do they avoid that for the next six weeks? 
uh, with significant difficulty. I think um, one way to do it is that you could have a vote of no confidence in the prime minister and you try to install a temporary government. The real challenge here is about the extension of the Article 50 negotiations. We have this deadline of October the 31st when the UK is supposed to leave the European Union. Parliament is determined that that date doesn't pass and the UK leaves with no deal. So you have this clear impasse and that and basically the Labour Party and the other opposition parties don't trust Boris Johnson not to kind of move the UK over that cliff edge so (laughs) the real question is can they find another way round that they feel that they can guarantee the UK uh, won't leave without a deal one way to do that would be to have a temporary leader in government the real uh, so you had a vote of no confidence government of national unity but the only way I think that could happen uh, is if conservative members of parliament who've had okay. who've lost the whip, so they've basically been expelled from their party, vote for that. And it's, okay. uh, it's not clear that they will now. Tom Raines, this is brilliant. It's so confusing. You and I have to have a beverage of our choice <laughs> in the second floor of rules if we're going to get through this. Forget about the complexity. Doesn't the prime minister call a general election this morning in Manhattan, fly home, and call their bluff on just have an election? That that. Well, is it's, that- it's not the the thing is with the change that we had under the under the previous Cameron government, it's not in the gift of the prime minister to simply call an election. He needs parliament support. He is a very weak prime minister in parliament. He has no majority whatsoever. Exactly. And so he is not really. So basically, he, they will they could call his bluff and say, well, no, we'll wait until after the thirty first of October. Okay. We'll have an election then, but, but then the- we still have this challenge of 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 how do you get. Boris Johnson uh, to ask for the extension that we need, and like, then we might have another legal fight. John, save me. I, I know you're very like frustrated a, I, I'm like this. an American. Tom, I mean, we have a fixed-term Tom, parliament act, shut up. which ultimately means you need a certain amount of MPs <laughs> to vote for an election, and right now the Prime Minister exactly. doesn't have enough of those MPs to get that election through unless the opposition start to come with him. Our electoral are you, are you process is so simple. Oh, yeah. A whole, a whole two years. A whole two years every four years building up to the next one. Thomas, we won't go there. If we had an election today, what would that result look like if the polls are any guide at the moment, Thomas? Um, I hate to keep answering questions with, with don't really know, but that nobody really knows. So at the moment, the Conservative Party yeah. are doing uh, relatively well in the polls. Labour are doing relatively poorly. The Conservatives yeah. are sort of mid-30s. Labour are mid-20s. The Liberal Democrats, which is the party most opposed to Brexit, are, are hot on Labour's heels. Yeah. And just behind them is the Brexit yeah. Party. So we have four parties in play yeah. in a system which is used to having sort of two or two and a half parties in play. So that makes yeah. all of the kind of modelling that people normally use to predict elections very difficult to use in this circumstance. I think you yeah. could have a situation where the Conservatives end up as the largest party in the House of Commons but without a majority and you have a Labour minority government which is supported by the Liberal Democrats and the SNP and that will lead wow. us to almost certainly a second referendum on Brexit. Tom Raines, thank you so much for the update. Confusion Raines. Thank you, Tom. We'll go through the morning here. And, of course, Prime Minister Johnson scheduled to speak this evening, afternoon, late, late as well. And then he will fly back to the United Kingdom. Right now, greeting him in the United Kingdom will be the mathematician from Cambridge. Wei Lee joins us. She is with BlackRock. 
and it really works in the emerging market area and the strategy forward. Um, to give it a Matthew Tiltway, Lee, if we could, we love having you on. Is the the is EM such a value in equity and in bonds that you have to own some, or do you have to own a lot? I think to start, you have to own uh, some. If you think about the percentage of uh, emerging markets as part of the overall global benchmark uh, for equities is itching towards under 20% for fixed income, it's growing as well. And that has been accelerated by the fact that uh, China, uh, China onshore assets across equities and bonds are increasingly getting included as well. So this year with uh, uh, Barclays, uh, uh, Bloomberg uh, inclusion, Global Ag, JP Morgan, Benchmark uh, uh, inclusion, MSCI inclusion on the equity side, we're talking about over $200 billion worth of money in motion just off the back of this uh, benchmark inclusion events along for China and more broadly with the emerging market coming of age and markets increasingly growing the direction of travel yes is uh, is on some and potentially more so Waitley just give us a sense of what your global allocation is right now and what changes you may have made recently to that Absolutely. So we have actually uh, recently upgraded uh, European equities from underweight to neutral and brought down our emerging market uh, equity exposure uh, um, from overweight to neutral as well on a tactical basis, and I'll tell you why. Specifically behind our European equity upgrade, that has been very much off the back of our expectation for the ECB to surprise on the upside versus uh, uh, consensus expectation in terms of the stimulus package and how far they would go. And we have seen part of that coming through, and we think that there is more to come with the incoming president, Christine Lagarde, uh, carrying over the baton as well. Um, specifically with regards to uh, our emerging market uh, equity downgrade from overweight to uh, neutral that had to do back then with the mood music in terms of trade tension between uh, the U.S. and China uh, deteriorating, but now that is incrementally getting better. We're reviewing that uh, uh, right now as well. And so, Wei as it relates to the U.S. market, are you expecting the Federal Reserve to be uh, going to a consistent easing here or maybe just kind of uh, one and done here? Well, um, looking at the rest of the year, another rate card is very much uh, on the table and the upcoming uh, Fed meetings are live in that uh, in that sense. Um, uh. We very much take comfort from the fact that uh, uh, Chairman Powell said at the, at, the, at, the, at the press conference, when needed, they stand by ready uh, to uh, ready to act. And the fact that, you know what, it's okay uh, uh, to have an economy that is not propped up by central bank easing. If it can go ahead by itself, that's even better. What is the tail risk right now? We have the advantage of you as a uh, strategist and manager in emerging markets for BlackRock, but define for us the sum of the tail risk right now within our global financial system. Um, I think... As it relates to emerging markets, the incremental 
news flow uh, with regards to trade very much weigh uh, on sentiment, which in <coughs> turn drives as allocation trend, which in turn uh, also has been impacting uh, price action as well. So yes, incrementally in the short term, mm-hmm. things seem to be getting better as we head into uh, the October meeting. Uh, but the strategic confrontation between the two superpowers in the world, that is not right. going away, especially as it relates to technology. So we have to bear that in mind very uh, much as we think about kind of the overall top-down mm. asset allocation. And um, beyond that, growth slowdown. Uh, growth slowdown and, 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 and spilling over from manufacturing into service part of the economy, that's right. something that we pay a lot of attention to. Not our base case recession, but it's, it's increasingly yeah. creeping into our client's <clears throat> radar in terms of fears. We have to leave it there. Whaley, thank you so much. She is with BlackRock in London. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.